three, three characteristics or three signs of uh, conditioned phenomena. There's a anicca, dukkha, anatta, so it's a familiar Theravada mantra, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not self. Um, and these are um, ways of tackling some of the inferences and assumptions that keep us going, that keep us holding on. Mm. That is the belief in that something should be permanent, something we can get hold of, some substance. We haven't got it yet, we'll get there. <laughs> and that's something we can get and have. Yeah. And, and dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, they apply this to particularly to feeling, pleasure, pain. So the, the sense of um, you know, it asks us to relate to experiences rather than to try to store them up, uh, to, or to defend ourselves from. It's a kind of so the sign of unsatisfactoriness is very kind of humbling, opening um, touch to it. Because it means, in a way, that the thing, the we rather rather childish, in that we demand and want, expect, look for something to be final, complete, satisfying. You know, like the the lollipop in the sky somewhere (laughs) on the earth. So this uh, makes our our responses rather infantile, then we grab things or push things away. <clears throat> but the relationship to unsatisfactoriness means that uh, it changes our response as one of grabbing and rejecting to one of uh, you know, embracing, healing, tuning in, um, bearing with compassion, release, opening up, accepting, so that that hunger and chafing in the heart can stop complaining and the frustration and the hunger can stop tanha anatta this uh, helps us to check (coughs) who's speaking, who's thinking the un- often unquestioned assumption in the uh, control box in the mind, thinking, speaking, some innate self there. And these these are these are skillful means. They're, they're um, questions, if you like. They pose questions to the way that we operate. Mm. So anatta, when you really check into that you and uh, you see how much one it, the mind is always seeing things from a particular single viewpoint my viewpoint you know so that's you know that's a kind of um that's the default 
But when I begin to bear in mind that that's only one viewpoint, it's not an absolute ultimate truth, <laughs> or even the best, even for myself, it's not that you know you want to hear other people's opinions for their welfare, but also you don't want to believe in yourself all the time, as if you, you know, that's it. Yeah. And so that sense of um, mutuality and, and uh, you know, loosening up this uh, kind of Unitarian fundamentalism of view that we, we got it or we're right or we're wrong. It's all relative. It's all just the just the subjective position. And so, particularly, the sense of self is becomes a <coughs> a focus point because we that becomes the centre for the uh, demands, the the complainings, the the punishments towards oneself, towards this and. It helps to, when we really bear this in mind, we see that rather than some single self, there's a number of programs that keep running, that take over the center stage from time to time and claim to be myself and want the world and the body and the mind and thoughts and feelings and other people to operate in accordance with. It's like a megalomaniac, but there's not just one of them. There's nomadic megalomaniacs taking over the the center stage, (laughs) or trying to, (laughs) and they're not happy. They're not even nice, they're not even good, happy megalomaniacs. They generally, you know, want more, don't want it this way, want to make, want to hold it, want to make it last, this kind of thing. So these just, these are helpful because whenever the the, the intensities build up around permanence, around wanting things to be unchanging and solid. Mm. Whenever the tensions build up around things not being satisfying, whenever the tensions build up around um, personal identity and uh, kind of an isolationism, you know, self-centeredness, then what's going on? These are signs, they're not ultimate truths. Mm. They're just signs to, to deal with the inferences and the, and of, of, the, of ignorance. They're not ultimate truths. So the deathless is not impermanent. <clears throat> it's, not, it's not unsatisfactory. It's neither self nor not self, it's not something the word self applies to. Mm. It doesn't arise. Mm. You could say it's not self, but it's uh, that particular sign doesn't have to be, that indication doesn't have to be made. These are useful um, reflections, useful things to, to bear in mind. How do you realize them? What's the realization of them? So it doesn't take very much just to recognize things change. Poets have been writing that for thousands of years. 
we know things change, change. but the real um, penetration of, of impermanence is recognizing that there's not even things. There's nothing but change, you know, or the, the conditioned experience is, is not just something that changes into another thing. It's like smoke rings. It just has no fundamental substance to it. It's both arising and ceasing at the same time. You know, just like if you, if you see a roll of smoke, you know, any form it takes is both the arising of one thing or ceasing, change. It's, it's not, it's, so for the, the realization of a stream entry is just this, arising, ceasing are the same. What, what is arising is ceasing. It's not something arises and then later it ceases. It's already ceasing as it's arising. You know, because any form is just a, a photograph, if you like, a snap shot of something that's in process of change, of ceasing being one thing and arising into being something else. It's like that. It's completely fluid. Mm-hmm. Now, when we experience our thoughts and emotions and feelings, they 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 don't uh, and energies and sensations they don't seem that way. They seem to lock. They seem to repeat. They may be impermanent, but they're not insubstantial. You know, they 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 can't, they repeat. They lock. You can be in a particular mood, emotional state for quite a long while. Um, you can have repeated thought patterns even though the thoughts themselves are, are fairly brief the patterns go on you know, the same kind of mood, the same mood tone the purpose of of samadhi is to um, Take, take one's attention, one's awareness deeper into the process of experience. So if we feel these thoughts as energies, these moods as energies, <clears throat> you can sense them in a much more dynamic way, which is why I sense myself the, the essential benefits and requirements of samadhi, the need for that as part of the Eightfold Path. Uh, we can know, we can understand things change, and it's like, I've got it, yeah, I really get that, and yet part of me clearly doesn't get it. You know, I get it in my head, and yet some bits of my system grasp, hold, you know, complain when things are changing. <laughs> I don't want it to be that way. Some part of one's instinct still goes for that, the sign of of holding on, something to hold on to. So in a way, you know, when one's one's wisdom has to descend beneath the forehead to really feel your awakening. It's not just the tip of your head that's going to get awakened, which knows impermanence, but actually to go right down get less and less Buddhist as you come down your body. <laughs> so the, the fits in the cranial 
can be quite quite clear, almost arahant. When it starts to get down to your throat, chest, and belly, it, it gets increasingly less less religious and and uh, convinced by that. So you can get quite a lot of tension in your in your abdominal centers in your chest. You still feel that the the tension or the holding or the clamping or the fearfulness <coughs> there. So we we really you know spreading awareness through the whole body because these are um, realization is a complete experience, it's not just a top of the head experience. And these patterns of reflexes and grasping and attachment and fear, defensiveness, depression, anxiety. They don't just happen up in the top of the head. Mm. They don't just happen verbally. They happen emotionally, somatically, and they happen in a reflex, involuntary way. We don't decide to do that. It's not because we're stupid. We keep doing it. It just comes over us. It affects us. Because whole aspects, if you like, of the... You know, aspects of our awareness intelligence is barely accessible until you develop samadhi. You're receiving the results of it, it's like underwater, and you're dealing with the stuff that's poking its head above the water, but you haven't, isn't dealing with the, the roots and the um, stuff beneath the water, like the tip of the iceberg you knock off, but there's still a whopping great hunk underneath the waves. Mm. So this is why we meditate, and samadhi is part of that, is that deepening process of concentration. I was saying concentration always kind of gives a mixed message, but it's really a deepening and extending awareness. So that um, we can clean the whole system. Because the whole system affects us. You know, the reflexes, as long as they're still there, will still get us going. Mm. And regretting it later. Believing in something for years and on end. Having an unresolved grudge for years on end. That sort of one feels one's dealt with. Because in some level you've you've creamed it off, you've forgiven and you've you say, no, well, life's like that, and people go through stuff, and yet somewhere still there's the kind of hurt sense, or the, you know, that can keep come welling up. And also, the Buddha talks about latent tendencies, or nutsia, dormant tendencies, or proclivities, and these are almost, uh, these are like, you know, patterns in a virtual realm of the mind that uh, we all have the newborn baby has the pattern for basic, in building it has the pattern for sexual desire. Babies don't experience that, but they, they've got it in the program somewhere. It takes a while for it to get on the desktop, but it's down there, you know. They don't have a lot of uh, malice, as the, the 
Buddha used this analogy, he says, you know, new newborn little tot doesn't really do much evil action apart from maybe kick his legs in the air a little bit, you know, or doesn't savory, doesn't bad mouth people, maybe cries and wails a bit, isn't greedy except maybe a little bit of milk. And yet all these tendencies for violence, for um, abuse, for um, depression and anxiety, all this is, is there. So it's latent, it's dormant, it's kind of in the system. So we have to recognize that also samadhi is necessary just because, because you know, what the top of your head is realizing isn't all, or dealing with right now, isn't all that's in store. You want to go deep to really check out the whole system. You know? So you both check it out and you also have a way of, of entering that so it's not just plummeting down into some traumatic experience but entering it carefully, thoroughly with knowing, with awareness rather than without awareness, rather than just kind of dropping down there into some sudden deep mood or feeling or memory without the full, full clear awareness. Mm. So you clean it out, you deepen, and the system purifies. This is definitely possible, and this is what uh, the path is about. Mm. So, and what samadhi does as, as is it is my my understanding of it is that it, it apprehends experience as an energetic way that is rather than particular instances like a thought or a feeling you get this kind of waves of it it fluxes and flows hmm. I mean don't, don't think you need to be that deeply attained to recognize that. You know, things are, are continually in flux and flow. The mind itself is a, what we call mind, is a process of many different energies streaming through and interacting. You get emotional tones and rational tones and you know, energetic, whether one's tired or brightly awake or stimulated, all of these have their effects. So all these are part of the condition arising of what we experience. It's all in flow, changing and fluxing. And yet, you know, bits of it snag and, and stick. And suddenly we're not in flow. These are, the, these are what we experience, hindrances. These are like intersections where the mind just kind of seizes up into a particular obsession, either with a thought or with a, an emotion Mm. your will for example um, craving sense desire um, uncertainty havering, wavering kind of trembling not, you know, radical doubt um, mm. dullness mind is kind of indolent and heavy, sluggish trapped, st- stuck or it's agitated, can't settle. So these are the classic patterns. These are the classic patterns. We tend to see them as, we tend to 
talk about them as if they're things. You've got them. Mm. But they're, they're, they're patterns where the energy locks into a particular form. Mm. And it's stuck. So it can be, that can be dissolved. Rather than surgery where you try and cut these things out or bash them, or dents where you try to bash the dents out of your system <laughs> or cut them out, it's more the process of samadhi is one where you you um, sort of massage the stuckness till it starts to release into flow, and then the hindrance transmutes. So that energy, which is all kind of tightened up into a particular thing like ill will, you know, if you keep massaging that place, it's not about not from a negative position of trying to get rid of it, but a recognition that there's a lot of energy in this stuff. And I think we all recognize that, you know. One can keep those flames of ill will going all day. They've got some juice in them. And they attract huge amounts of thought and time. And, and uh, you know, they've got magnetic pull to them. So they're very powerful. What would it be like if we could actually channel the power of the hindrances? Yeah. Imagine we could hook that up to the national grid. We wouldn't need power stations anymore. <laughs> Run cars on, on ill will. <laughs> so there's enormous energy there, isn't there? Yeah. And so that rather, you know, how, do you, how are you going to get rid of that? Because they often seem to have more energy than the mind that's trying to deal with it. You know, it struggles against it and this, the hindrances comes back and whaps it down, holds it down. Sometimes you get things like, like dullness can be like feeling like you're trapped under one of these big sumi wrestlers. You know, you can't really get the thing off your back and it's just holding you down. The octopus of sensuality. Every time you just manage to get one, one of these uh, suckers off you, another one grabs you around the neck. Yeah. Lively little creatures. So, so rather than if you, you know, you, sometimes they seem to have more energy than your than the mind that's trying to deal with them. So we need to both build up. Uh, the power of awareness through samadhi, through drawing on the body energy, the life force energy, tapping into that as you breathe in and breathe out. So the, you, you're, you've got access to the most uh, powerful energy going, which is the energy of your life force. Mm. So you're breathing in, breathing out. Mm. It's not a doing energy, it's the energy of, of, of that keeps your whole system running. And you can tap into that, and then you sort of start to attend to the hindrances, sort of nudging them, breathing through them, you might say, breathing into them, you know, feeling the grip of a hindrance, how it affects your chest or your throat, or it wraps itself around your head, like uh, dullness often seems to make your skin crinkle up. So you can feel like you've got your head wound up with cling film, you know, feels you know, kind of shut down and puckered. 
You know, so you go to the skin and start breathing in and out through the eyes, through the temples, through the forehead. Mm-hmm. Just really opening up the, the tissues, the periphery, which is where you, one experiences dulness. Or it may be you, your spine turns into plasticine. Mm-hmm. You suddenly, suddenly your spine goes all rubbery. So you attend to the spine and draw your energy, your awareness up and down your spine until the spine becomes bright and clear. Yeah? So, you, you know, these are ways in which we get under-stimulation or over-stimulation could be checked in the, that particular way. You can sometimes feel ill will, that the effect that has on, on your chest or your belly. Parts of your body seems to seize up and you get feel rigid with uh, a kind of a, a low low frequency rage mm-hmm. so opening widening softening mm-hmm. you know breathing in breathing out through all, all, all that so these patterns of hindrance which have got a kind of freezing locking gripping effect have to be felt not in terms of how you judge them, whether they're how justifiable they are, you know, or how unjustifiable they are, you know, how you shouldn't be this way surely after all these years and after all and so forth, you know, and he was doing the best he could and so forth, these kinds of things. No, you still want, that's not the issue right now. The issue is still you've got this particular clamp. So we, we, drop the topics and the justice of it and the rightness or wrongness and the, all that and just go to the energy of that. So it's a very clean kind of process, very immediate kind of process. It's, it's a not-self process. It, meditation just doesn't do your self-image any good whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. It's not. It's not an atar experience. It's a humbling, wonderful, awesome, you know, um, experience that just blows out that the self definitions. So we go go to the the uh, these energetic level of experience, and you really can sense that how. Um, even a stuck pattern is really just a, a process of change that keeps locking and repeating. So as you get, particularly get, if you get powerful surges of sense of, of fear or dread or craving or passion of some kind, you can sense even within that there's a kind of a rising up and then there are ebbs and flows. So you want to bear the whole pattern in mind and particularly attend to the, the ebbing. There's the, there's the waves, so you get these waves of it. And then notice particularly how they're kind of just past the peak before the, in the, the mind sort of levels and then it comes back again. You get these just after the peak. It's the first thing you start to focus on. You know, just after the peak of the hit, of the pleasure, the thing that really gets you, feels juicy and 
interesting, just that moment after it, before you, the mind picks up another image, because it has to keep these patterns only get made permanent through the mind reintroducing perceptions, images, either memories or pictures or you know tokens of some kind. So that reintroducing is the input of craving and ignorance. And if that, yeah, that keeps picking it up again. So you go more to the, the energy pattern. Once you focus on that and let go of the images, yeah, then you're more inclined to, to recognize the, 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 the fading sign, the you know, sign of things loosening, becoming less definite. So if you take a process like just thinking, you know, thinking, thinking, this, that, this, that, worrying about this, this, I'm going to do this, can do that, can't do this, mustn't do that, when I'm going to do this, should I be like that? And you can feel the kind of just the general overall pushing agitation of that. Mm. You know, so you feel the energy of that pushing the agitation, and then they're trying to stop it, find some certainty, seek permanence as a, in a, a certainty, and the, dis- the uncomfortable quality of an of a unresolved thought process that wants certainty, that wants finality, and never gets it, really. There's never a final thought, is there? So, she kind of recognized that anicca, dukkha, aspect, quality of thought, and then is that taking you out of the topic of the thought to the to the nature of the process breathing in breathing out you can feel the thought energy something that pulses and rushes through the system and you're going towards more the the ebbing or the quietening of that You feel how thought affects you in your in your chest or your throat or your forehead or your temples or your wrists or your fingers. Mm-hmm. That's where you can breathe in and breathe out and that will loosen that so it becomes more ephemeral, permanent, changing. Mm-hmm. And the knowing of that or the recognition of that um, as it's Thorough. This is what the called the awakening or the um, realization or the, some glimpse, some some realization of, of the deathless. Is that? Mm. It's not that something comes and goes, but that whatever is arising is ceasing. Whatever ceasing is arising. It's just that. It's important that one sees it like that because this is not about dismissing them. I think what can happen is one one becomes a you know a kind of a Nietzsche fundamentalist <laughs> is that everything is impermanent, therefore I bother. Thoughts are impermanent, so it doesn't really matter about thinking. Emotions are impermanent, so it doesn't really matter what emotions you have. 
So you can use this as a kind of, of, a, of a way of dismissing thoughts and emotions, particularly other people's thoughts and emotions that you don't agree with. <laughs> so, well, that's impermanent, let go of that thought and emotion, you know. So it's sort of where you can dismiss things in that way. Yeah. But it, just because it's impermanent doesn't mean it has no validity. It both arises and ceases. It's ceasing, but it's also arising. Yeah. And uh, this means a very, the knowing doesn't take a stand upon arising or ceasing. It doesn't say, you know, ceasing therefore and don't bother. Ceasing is ceasing, arising is arising. So this is what we do with meditation. Now what we want to make of that is, of course, you know, why we have a whole path. Why the Buddha didn't just teach meditation. He taught vinya. He taught training. He taught ways and means of um, culture, if you like. A whole culture of living. Mm-hmm. Could have said, well, um, you know, um, people are impermanent, things are impermanent, things change, therefore why bother have a precept against killing? But, uh, or, you know, why, why train? There's no, you know, there's no self, unsatisfactory impermanence and all that. But it did teach a whole process of handling impermanent ephemeral phenomena so that it's in the correct handling of that there's a purity not handling it in a way whereby we we have a fundamentalist dismissal of phenomena or a fundamentalist grasping of phenomena instead we have a, an openness and awakening to phenomena these have potency these are these have potential these carry karma Hmm. These and there's times and places to engage in thoughts, to yeah, which have an emotional power to them, to conceive, to think clearly, to attune. Doesn't mean that those are permanent. It doesn't mean they're non-existent. And it's in the the skill of the knowing is to be able to be present with thought and feeling emotion and sensation mm-hmm. and we begin to sense within that even more deeply embedded than these thoughts and emotions themselves are the particular currents of bhava vibhava that is sometimes we want to see things as really impermanent I want to see ha- unhappiness as impermanent I don't want to see happiness as impermanent you know, I like to see uh, agitation and restlessness and busyness as impermanent. I want to see stillness and serenity as definitely permanent and mine and get as much as I can. So you see kind of radical biases whereby, uh, you know, so when we start to understand or comprehend some of these biases which don't manifest alone, they always are buried underneath the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. So these, uh, these then, the, the bhava vibhava is becoming, affirming, 
um, stabilizing, taking identity with, and um, we bother getting out of escape strategies. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, you know, these are the ways in which we, or the mind, can use impermanence as a pretext for dismissing escaping from responsibilities saying oh it's impermanent don't bother and then uh, and then you know for somehow finding it um, justifiable to to make more substantial more permanent the uh, the, the stillness or the silence mm, or things that I feel good about feel feel contented with mm. I mean, these these are not easy to to um, relinquish, but at least to acknowledge them is a is a good start. To acknowledge that uh, how how we use these teachings, mm-hmm. to recognise that the, the even this, we we comprehend the impermanence of phenomena doesn't mean we don't manifest them or use them or take them seriously, or attune to them. The Buddha did teach the vinya, the training, the way of life, the livelihood, the sangha, the responsibility, the commitments, the sharing, you know, the right ways of doing things. He did teach a whole, you know, made that as much a part of his teaching for the longevity of, of uh, the transmission through, our, through this time. And though he taught this, of course, you know, this is always balanced out by it changes, it shifts, it changes, it shifts, it shifts and changes. And yet you keep attuning to the patterns and processes within that that give rise to inspiration and relinquishment of dogmatism and the relinquishment of the fetters and the relinquishment of the positions and becoming and standpoints and views. That's always the bane of all kind of religions. Tradition becomes uh, sanctified and authorized and impervious to shift and change. Even in a teaching where where on one level we're radically affirming change, some things ain't going to shift. So it's just, you get this kind of uh, the, the way in which certain you know one needs to penetrate a lot deeper. And this is what they cultivate samadhi for internally, just to, to really start to look into one's own need for position mm, in oneself. You know. This is not something that any of us can feel free from mm. it's not a personal thing it's a very basic thing and uh, you know it has to be handled with respect and care so as in when we cultivate in a you know in meditation within a context there's also a sense of well still you know we've penetrated this far this bit we have to be careful about. Mm. 
know, correct boundaries, safety, respect mm, for all beings. Mm. And for the difficulties that passion, ill will, fear, intimidation uh, carry for us. So also with the uh, process of meditation, you, while we have sort of long retreats, and this is just the beginning of, for many of us, what will be another month or so, or a few weeks of personal retreat, during this time, you know, you, you're, you're using samadhi as a kind of a, as a resource, um, and just timing it so right now you have to be with this just focusing inwardly and then you you can use this then this resource then to start to you know spread through your whole psychology you know from the most superficial to the deepest to see where are the bits which one still feels very much as lock there's a holding there mm. And it feels like there's a need for it. For one's future, for one's space, for one's place, for one's power. Some of these mirages are very intense. Hmm. practice of cleaning things out is generally something that's done in a kind of gentle way uh, often what happens is for people that we get pulled into the centre of our problem it's like you get an issue comes up and it drags you right in and you, you're right under it you're being pinned by it mm. by it some particular image that causes lust to arise, or some particular memory that causes resentment to arise, or some particular topic that you just keep whittling away at and feeling doubtful and restless about, and you just keep going right in there and embedding in it. And we kind of think we're meditating, because, you know, in some way you're sitting there doing anything, and yet this is actually cutting it deeper. So you don't want to be doing that. Uh, it's always this blending of you're feeling your body, you're feeling your breathing, you have whatever your sign is that where you're, you're developing samadhi around. And you just go to touching the edges. So it's all holding a space, getting the space so you can begin to, you know, just get a taste of some of the edges of this, particularly in parts of your body where you feel the, the real sense of heat or strength or intensity and you just go to the edges of that and start to soften. It's rather like when you undo a knot where you go to is not the tightest bit of the knot but the loosest bit. You go to the outside and you start teasing the outside and you just go to a little and you play with it a little bit at the edges and then you kind of you work from the edges inwardly. You don't go to the centre of the knot. 
So it's a patient process. And uh, a wisdom process. It's not a power thing. And I think it has its own time. You know, one really wants to sometimes just to get rid of this stuff. And yet actually it means taking it for a walk. A long walk. Mm. 